Father in heaven, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for uh, faithful men and women throughout the, uh, church history who loved you and loved the gospel and stuck their necks out and sometimes literally uh, lost their heads and lost their lives for the sake of your truth. We pray that uh, we would stick our necks out in our culture, not just to be obnoxious or just to be abrasive or corrective, but just uh, holding out the truth in a, in a gentle way uh, about the goodness of your gospel and, and the beauty of Christ. And uh, as we uh, express the church together as a body, um, would you make us unified and may Jesus be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're going to talk about Reformation history, kind of a short series. I'm going to do two weeks, and then uh, Wade's going to do uh, two weeks. Um, How many of you like history? How many of you are into history? Wow, two people. This is why uh, teaching history is so challenging, because history was probably is the one subject in school that is really done poorly, like, almost across the board. So you can almost guarantee that history was like Snorfest uh, 101. So uh, I'm going to try not to do that to you this morning, because, let me get my file up here. Missing my... Where's my file? We had all kinds of technology problems this morning, so we... uh, Appreciate your patience here. players. So when you think about a nation or you think about um, who are all the major players in in a place? Who are all the important people? Bert? The priests and the kings. Okay. So we got priests. We got kings. Who else do we have? Really important people like in medieval history. Types of people. You don't have to do exact names. Who's got all the power? Who's got all the... Pulled the strings? We got Pope. Okay. Oh, here we have... We're already running into trouble. Where do I draw Pope? Does he go under here? Or is there another column over here? Hmm. This is what's so tricky. Is the Pope just another priest? <laughs> or is the Pope almost like a king? So here we got. Here's the problem. This is what we run up against again and again. And it's going to be the problem we see this morning. And the problem uh, that the Reformation uh, talks about a lot. So here we have, quote unquote, secular. And here we have, we could just call it sacred slash church. 
So immediately we have to start differentiating. There's people with power that have power in the secular realm, political, and then we got people that have power. So for most of medieval history, the Pope was just like another king. But we start to see that there's kind of pushback back and forth about who made who, who's in charge of who, who asked permission, who first. And so we see this tug of war back and forth uh, between uh, these two. And so under kings are obviously lords, and then the lords own the peasants. Under pope are archbishops, bishops, priests. Then there's these awkward weirdos over here called monks. <clears throat> and they can either be helps or pain in the necks for the priests or the popes or the kings. <clears throat> then, of course, all the way over here you have revolutionaries. So in the medieval world, you were always trying to figure out what am I, who am I, what am I worth? Really, the whole world was kind of figured out by where you fell on the chart. And certain people obviously can't speak up the chain. You can only be spoken down to. And so one of the big struggles that kind of comes to a head, as we're going to see this morning with Wycliffe, is these guys talking back to these guys. And we're going to find out that Wycliffe is actually closer to one of these guys, one of the holy orders that ran all the universities. Because think about it. Think about California. What if they could run education and have it not cost them any money? Hey, let's talk to guys who want to do school for free, right? And don't require pensions or anything, right? And so obviously, that's kind of what the thinking was, is what if we could have really educated people and it would cost us exactly nothing to educate them? Plus there's these monks that do it as their service to God. So hey, they're earning crowns in heaven. We're just going to let the monks run Oxford and Cambridge and the University of Paris. Isn't that awesome? We have these guys totally willing to give their lives, study Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, and we get schooled, educated people for free. Well, there's no free lunch, right? We're going to start to see how this was, they were educating for free, but actually this caused a huge problem for the Pope, the Archbishop, even kings. Um, so we're starting to see that all of these things start to uh, really uh, tie together. So it's not just an issue of bad decisions or biblical uh, reasons for what they did. All of these things had implications for what they were doing because the, the world was so, I guess we could say, complicated in all the views of who got their authority from God and how do we live out our authority uh, in everyday life. So that's why the point one is kings, priests, and pope. Uh, play rock, scissors, paper. And uh, we're, have any of you heard about uh, Thomas Becket? Have you heard of him? Famous archbishop in Canterbury. He was martyred. He was killed while uh, serving communion. So that's kind of lame, right? Uh, unarmed man, his hands are full, literally uh, bread and wine uh, preaching, and uh, the king's henchmen come and stab him in the neck, uh, right in the middle of church. And so T.S. Eliot wrote a, a long-form poem that, that turned into a play called Murder in the Cathedral. 
And it, how many of you read Canterbury Tales by Chaucer? Man, we have too many uh, engineers and computer scientists here. Uh, <laughs> the whole reason that there's a Canterbury Tales was everybody was on a pilgrimage in England to Canterbury, which was where Becket was assassinated. Because they believed not only was he an archbishop, but he not only was a martyr, but he also was a saint. Because technically to be a saint, there had to be some miracle associated with your life or after your death with your body or your bones or your skull or part of your robes or your special ESV Bible or something. If people touched it, they got healed. So some of that technically, quote-unquote, happened uh, with Thomas uh, Beckett. But something you need to know about Beckett is this kind of illustrates the problem of the medieval world was before Thomas Becket was Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas was the king's very best friend. And as young 20-something guys, like very, very best friends do, they went to clubs, they went to gentlemen's clubs, uh, they went hunting and falconing, and they went riding all over England and all over France, all over Germany, having a, a great old time. And the kind of stuff that people tweet and like, man, that wasn't that crazy. So these guys were drinking buddies. They were living it up, obviously not in a very godly way. And then suddenly uh, King Henry gets this awesome idea. Hey, there's no Archbishop of Canterbury. Wouldn't it be awesome if my very best friend, my very best drinking buddy uh, becomes my Archbishop? This will be awesome. And so King Henry appoints uh, Thomas to be Archbishop. But he has the gall all of a sudden, to turn holy and actually act like a new man, act like a Christian. And so suddenly Henry, who nominated his drinking buddy Thomas to be his archbishop, Thomas starts to talk back to the king. Well, talking back to the king is a problem, number one, because of this, right? You don't talk back to the king, especially if this king nominated you to be archbishop, right? But it's doubly awkward because the king could say, hey, I remember what you did last summer. Uh, when they used to go clubbing together and, and they used to visit ladies of the night. So suddenly the king is saying, oh, you're, you're getting all holy on me. What's up with this? And so suddenly we have a spiritual and we have a political battle. And so what happens if the king and the archbishop are in a fight? Rock, scissors, paper. Who do they call to be the tiebreaker? You call in the Pope. King of England is a Christian king. So Christian kings, who do they have on speed dial for when they're having a problem? Hello, Father Pope. Having a problem with this pesky archbishop of yours. Can you come, like, fix this problem? Well, what's the Pope going to do? Who's he going to side with? Possibly because the Pope needs the king's support anytime he wants to raise money. Uh, he wants the king to continue tithing his 10% plus gold, plus land, plus free travel, free cows, free beer, whatever um, the Pope is dependent upon. But the Pope it, here is standing on spiritual principle. Is that... Christ runs everything through his church. 
And this actually is on point number two. Let's look at that for a second. So this is kind of uh, about uh, 50 to 100 years after the time of Thomas Beckett. Uh, the Pope uh, issues the papal bull. And this isn't a value judgment on what was written. That's what it's called, is a bull. So, uh, B-U-L-L. So, unum sanctum means one holy or one holy church. And listen to just the statement, and then we'll tease out what, what that means. Now, therefore, we declare, say, determine, and pronounce that for every human creature, it is necessary for salvation to be subject to the authority of the Roman pontiff. So obviously you're maybe kind of starting to itch or sweat or get mad reading that, right? Um, what is that saying? Well, he's saying something very elaborate on this chart. I did you a favor and didn't give that to you because your head would explode. But let me try to draw a short version of that. So really asking about authority. And as good Christian people, these medieval people knew what Jesus said in the Great Commission. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, right? So go, therefore, make disciples, preach, baptize to the ends of the earth. Okay, so they're saying Jesus is the only authority, right? Good Christians were going, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, the Bible says that. Jesus is the authority. But then the practical question is, Jesus ain't here. <clears throat> he is, but obviously he's not maybe talking to all of us. Maybe he's only talking to one of us in this argument. And all of us, in unguarded moments and honest moments, we would say, hey, Jesus is on my side. Give me a break. Uh, can't you tell? Uh, I'm so right, I have the right arguments. So already, people have to figure out when it comes to a tie, when it comes to an impasse, who do you default to? And so they had elaborate theories about authority. And the Pope here in Unum Sanctum is basically saying, the church has all authority to obviously handle spiritual matters, which is sacraments and that includes forgiveness of sins through the absolution but then via the church and obviously this is done symbolically whenever a king would be crowned who has to put the crown on him did you watch the royal wedding a few weeks ago at 3 in the morning none of you woke up for that I didn't either um, but the church puts the crown on the king. So this is saying something very symbolic and very important. That since Jesus has all authority, and the spiritual authority on earth is the church, the king is going to have to bow either just formally or actually to receive his kingship. Since all kingship is from the Lord, and all kingship should be spiritual, but already you're starting to have a problem, aren't you? The problem is that the church in the medieval world wasn't just spiritual. What else did it have? Political. 
and lots of money. And the church had lots and lots of friends, i.e. other kings. So they had money, they had friends. They even had a military. And now it's just a figurehead, the guy in the poofy pants who switched guards uh, in Vatican City. But they, the, the papacy had a little army, and they could call it up, and they could be marching within a day or two, doing whatever the Pope said, locking, literally locking kings out of their palace, um, blocking people out of church where they couldn't receive the forgiveness of sins. And so we started to see, and pe- other people started to see, hey, the church isn't just spiritual. Look at all the gold in these places. Look at all the buildings. Look at all the real estate. Look at all the people. Literally millions of dollars being spent every day in the administration of quote-unquote spiritual things. So it wasn't just guys in scratchy robes singing chants. There was a lot of bling going on, a lot of feasting. It, this wasn't the austerity of the monastery. This, the church looked a lot like a king's palace. And so people were starting to say, yeah, you talk all spiritual, but money talks, and you've got the money. And so the king was in uh, the medieval world was starting to push back a little bit on the church, saying, you're acting like not a shepherd under Christ's authority, but you're acting a whole lot like a king. And us kings, we're not sure we like that. We're willing to bow to Jesus and kiss his ring, but... Pope, you're looking a lot like a king. So already, uh, politically, and then also over here we have monks and, uh, and theologians asking really pointed questions about, does the Bible really say, O oh, Pope, that you are king of the world? Does it really mean that when Jesus says, I have all authority, that he's actually sharing some of that? And that's actually uh, what uh, brings us then uh, to Wycliffe. Any questions uh, so far? This is kind of the dry bits uh, that you're familiar with from uh, high school or college. So so this is just like the structure of the early church. Yeah, this would be the medieval church from about uh, 1,000 to, and now we're at like the 1300s. So we're talking uh, 11th to 14th centuries. So people debate when did the Catholic Church turn capital C Catholic, and it's right around the late 800s to 1000s when the Bishop of Rome quits being just one of the bishops to being the primary among the brothers, first among equals is kind of the Latin uh, term. But as you know from Animal Farm, some are more equal than others, right? Um, so we have this struggle, and this, this great, in uh, philosophy is called the chain of being. Where do you fit? Who has a voice? Who has any pull? Who has any power? And this, these are all the big questions that are being asked is, what power do, do the people have? Are they just supplying money up the chain? Are they just kind of cogs in the wheel? Um, are they the ones that keep priests having a job to do, of baptizing and marrying and burying? You know, 
people ask pastors, what do you do all day? What do you do all week besides golf? You know? <laughs> you don't produce goods, and we're not really sure you provide a service, so what do you do? <laughs> and in kind of the Catholic realm is, well, we pray for you, or we are intermediaries. So the, the question is, and not just on an economic standpoint, but just we're always asking ourselves, is what role do I play? What good am I to my neighbor? How do I do the most good? So these are kind of philosophical questions that have really practical implications for this whole chain of being. Who props up who? Who who makes who? You know, what happens if these people decide not to go to church? What happens uh, to the priests? You know, do they not get you know tax money if nobody shows up? You know, so these things are kind of in the back of people's minds. And then towards the 12th and 13th centuries, these things are being said out loud, and some of these people aren't being killed or silenced. And so there's kind of this murmuring, there's kind of this uh, underground uh, noise kind of rising up to the surface. So yeah, that's a good good question, Dave. And then kind of point, sort of a second thing, we've kind of been talking about the two, the two swords here. There's a spiritual sword and then there's a um, physical one. But now the Pope can kill you, the Pope has an army, that can kill you. So these swords are kind of, it's not clear where one starts and one stops. It's kind of getting confusing. And some people are bold enough to say, I'm confused. Can you straighten me out from Scripture about how this is supposed to work? And some of them could, some of them couldn't. And uh, So some thing, other things that are happening, you've probably heard about the Crusades, which is kind of for people outside the church is kind of Christianity's ugly family secret. Killing people in the name of Jesus? What's up with that? You know, that doesn't sound like turn the other cheek. um, But kind of since, obviously, these people are trying to keep the order, right? Keep things running this way, either for the sake of Jesus and his authority and his beauty, or just humanly speaking, they're trying to keep the game going and trying to keep their place, if you want to look at it cynically, which is very tempting to do after looking at all this stuff. So the Crusades basically was trying to unite Christianity. Christianity was starting to splinter into East and into West. Now we have two distinct branches of Christianity, not even talking about the Reformation. Eastern Orthodoxy, which is Russian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Armenian, any church that has Orthodox on the front except Orthodox Presbyterian. Um, Don't confuse that. That's Reformation stuff. Any church that says Orthodox, they are Eastern Christians. They have different worship, different understanding of the creeds. And in 1054, the Eastern bishop and the Western bishop excommunicated each other. So obviously you're not in fellowship when you excommunicate uh, someone, right? (laughs) You're on purpose saying... Uh, we can't hang. We're not going to take from the same plate and the same cup. We're two different kinds of Christians. Ah, we don't even think maybe you're even a Christian. So, excommunicating. So there's the split between East and West. But there was always this desire, hey, we have a new enemy. The enemy isn't Eastern Christianity. The enemy isn't Western Christianity. The enemy was Islam. Islam was taking over uh, Asia, and it was threatening to take over Europe. 
And so Christians were starting to say, hey, we have an enemy. That makes us a common enemy in history. This, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. <laughs> when you start to ask, how do those people white work together? It's this very simple principle. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so that's like we supported many of the Middle Eastern dictators that we are now trying to overthrow because they were against the quote-unquote right enemy. And so we supported them and trained them, and now they're blowing us up. So all based on this uh, simple principle, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So the church was saying, hey, let's rally against Islam. They are ready to take over the Holy Land, the place where Jesus lived and bled and died. This is our place. This is Christian a Christian place. And so the Crusades were not only to protect the Holy Land, but in one sense to make this one last rally for our team. Hey, let's have a unified front against our common enemy. But as we look at history, that failed. The Crusades were a PR nightmare. Crusades were a political and financial nightmare. And just basically, it didn't work. Islam, go to any place in Europe, there's more Muslims having babies than Europeans having babies. So it's literally a numbers game, and history says Christianity lost in terms of the demographic. And that's what Europe is, is telling us uh, right now. Another interesting thing about the Crusades is if you were kind of sketchy on the church side, especially in the instance of uh, Thomas Beckett, who was murdered, you know what happened to his murderers? They got to work off their crime as penance by going on the Crusades. So it became kind of an easy way, kind of like Britain did with Australia. We're going to send all of our criminals off to this other part of the world. We're done with them, and they can do their time and work off their crimes, uh, debts to society. So the Crusades, for many, of, many people, were literally penance for sins they had done and committed back then. So that means you had really quality guys... Uh, fighting in the Crusades. We give our best uh, to the Crusades, right? Yeah. And so, uh, so we have this problem after the Crusades. And then uh, there's this whole other party called the Knights Templar. Have you heard of those guys? It always works nicely into all kinds of medieval stuff and the Grail legend and stuff like that. So literally, if you were going to go somewhere, uh, these guys were very rich and they had all the weapons. So they were kind of uh, uh, soldiers of fortune. You could literally say, hey, I'm going to go fight in Jerusalem. Will you hold my gold for me? And uh, a lot of people, as you can imagine, never came back for their gold because uh, they died on the battlefield. So guess what? The, the bankers, quote-unquote the Knights Templar, what did they have? They came out of the Crusades with some serious uh, coinage and some serious power. So on top of monks, we have these pseudo-religious knights with all kinds of weird mystical practices. And, but they've got all the money, so suddenly they're another player in the game that, that kings and popes had never foreseen before. And then, on top of them, you have these annoying monks. What do monks do every day? Read the Bible and pray. <laughs> Which is a very dangerous thing when you're in authority and you're pulling some fast ones over people. You're kind of being a little dodgy with how you're quoting scripture and how you're living out uh, your spiritual uh, role of authority. And so these guys are just way past annoying. They are threatening. 
because they're saying, uh, King, I was over here in the Greek uh, this morning, in Romans, and I read this little thing that, that sort of doesn't jive with what you're pulling on us as people. And guess what? These monks, remember how I said conveniently they were providing free education in the empire? Well, they're educating all these people in the scriptures, and they're also educating them how to ask very pointed questions to authorities, not really caring where the answer ends up. Because aren't you taught in school? Let the truth take you wherever it should go, right? We have no agenda. We're just seeking the truth. But then, whoa, 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 not that truth. No, that can't be true. And so here we have the church reasserting authority and labeling these uh, three types of people, oddly enough, heretics. And even the Catholic Encyclopedia will say, these are not heretics because what they are teaching about Christ or the Trinity, they are heretics because they are questioning authority. We're like, whoa. This is getting real interesting. The Pope who has the sword and can excommunicate or withhold forgiveness and can literally kill heretics. Maybe the truth isn't leading to wherever it leads. Maybe there's certain things we can't believe or certain things we can't say because it runs afoul of authority. And here you start to hear things. Your ears are starting to itch like, that sounds like the Reformation. What's the authority around here? Is it a dude? Is it a bunch of dudes called the church? Is it just a church council that tells us what the scriptures are? Or is it the scriptures themselves? And so that brings us to Wycliffe. Wycliffe has all this stuff going on. Oh, and I haven't even talked about that there were several popes at the same time. So that would make your head explode. Which one am I submitting to? Which pope am I submitting to? The French one or the Italian one? So obviously, depending on what uh, kingdom you live in, you're either pro-French or anti-French. You're either pro-Italian or anti-Italian. So suddenly, who you like, not only for World Cup or Super Bowl or, uh, or World Series, it's which pope? Uh, depending on, has he been mean to your king? Has he not given you money for your armies? Has he not uh, forgiven your king's sins after he had that little fling with so-and-so, you know, that kind of thing. So there's political reasons for all these spiritual allegiances, and people are starting to say, what's up with that? I didn't read that in the Bible. So people are reading the Bible in the original languages, and people like Wycliffe have all the nerve to start publishing the Bible in everyday languages. So an English Bible is a political threat. Why is an English Bible a political threat? Who is it a threat to? Can you think about it as we're looking at our chart? Bert? The elites, because that means that everybody can have the Bible and they would get their own ideas because it's the people who were not only uh, couldn't understand what they were saying, the people who knew what to say um, would just make up what they want. Mm-hmm. Do you remember when mom and dad were whispering and stuff? They would have like secret language and stuff. And then you cracked the code. 
and you knew where you were going on vacation or that you weren't going to get that awesome bike or <laughs> Xbox or whatever. That's what's happening. Somebody's publishing mom and dad's code. And we cracked it. Now we are threatening authority. Now. But then we say, well, what's up with that? Isn't the Bible... Who's the Bible for? Well, we're on the other side of the Reformation, so it's really easy for us to answer that question. But in this kind of world with this complicated chart, it wasn't so easy to answer who's the Bible for, right? And you might hear this. Uh, you haven't been to seminary, so I wouldn't be very confident about what you're saying there about the Bible. What if I pulled stuff like that on you guys? What would you do? Would any of you walk out? Maybe, yeah. <laughs> so there's ways even in our evangelical world where we can be a little sketchy that way too. Is like, well, in the Greek, well, you know, that kind of thing. Well, this is really getting us to ask some very basic questions. Who is the Bible for? Who is God's grace for? Who is able to tell us about God's grace? Who is able to know with confidence that they belong to Christ? Those questions hadn't been answered in the ways we answer them until just now. And, we, and that's kind of why history is so important, that when you live in this world, some of these answers aren't open to you because of who's an authority and what's been held away from you. And now the vernacular scriptures, that's just the fancy way of saying everyday language, published not in Latin, Greek, or Hebrew, but in the everyday speech of everyday people. So suddenly, power to the people, Right? simply because somebody starts publishing God's word in their language. These guys are already breakaway guys. In some ways, they're resistance guys to the political machine. And here they're empowering people to believe that God forgives their sins by faith. And they can hear it in the same language that they order a fish sandwich, you know, down at the market. Just think about that. Something that moves from just lofty, you know, Gregorian chant down into everyday language that husband and wife speaks and, and father and son speak. This is the very language that we can speak to God with. <clears throat> What's the biggest Bible translation organization in the world? What is it called? Wycliffe. They're doing this all over the world every day, giving their lives in jungles all over the place, cities all over the world taking God's riches and then bringing them down to the people. I don't know if some of you see it. A lot of it went around the Facebook uh, this year, but a tribe in Papua New Guinea received their first copy of the scriptures. Have you seen this video? I'll try to repost it this afternoon. It'll blow your mind. Literally people in tribal headdress and uh, elders of the city and of the town, uh, women mostly, came chanting and rejoicing and they held the scriptures on their shoulders and they danced for like a mile from where the missionaries brought the Bibles on a plane to their church. And they say, Jesus has come to our town. Jesus has touched us. We say, dude, Jesus has always been here. He, he, his presence fills the world by the Holy Spirit. But they had a very simple truth. They got it and they expressed it in joy and dancing and feasting and singing. Is that when God speaks to you in your language, He has reached you and He has touched you. And in just that action of publishing the scriptures, not even all the technical 
uh, argumentation that Wycliffe did. He was the prep professor of divinity at Oxford University, which means he was no slouch uh, <laughs> as a professor. But he was the guy preaching this stuff, teaching this stuff. He is one of these beggar uh, friars telling people the forgiveness of sins, uh, telling them, don't fear, God loves you, and then speaking it to them in their everyday language. So he, he has the theological backbone, he has the backing of Oxford University, but most of all he has the backing of God's Word. And that was revolutionary for him to be taking on popes and, uh, and archbishops. Let me read you something that he actually wrote to the Pope. I love guys like this. Again, I submit that the Roman pontiff, that's the Pope, inasmuch as he is Christ's highest vicar on earth, is among pilgrims most bound to this law of the gospel. For the majority of Christ's disciples are not judged according to worldly greatness, but according to the imitation of Christ in their moral life. Again, from out of the heart of the Lord's law, I plainly conclude that Christ was the poorest of men during the time of his pilgrimage and that he eschewed or rejected all worldly dominion. This is clear from the faith of the gospel, Matthew 8 and 2 Corinthians 8. From all this, I deduce that never should any of the faithful imitate the Pope himself, nor any of the saints, except insofar as he may have imitated the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing that to the Pope. They're like, whoa. But he's calling the Pope out, not just because he's acting like king of the world. But he's saying, Pope, if you are the shepherd of Christ, what's that supposed to look like? It's supposed to look like Christ. And one of the things that the the monks and the friars were saying (coughs) is that poverty is one of the marks of gospel purity. Because he's basically saying to authorities, you can talk all you want about purity and meekness and holiness and humility, but it's kind of hard to hear that from you when you're wearing, wearing five layers of gold robes and say kiss the ring, right? And we're not disrespecting the Pope. We're just asking some basic questions, saying, is this saying the same thing as what Jesus is saying over here? Is the message and then the manner of life, don't those two things have to go together? Otherwise, it doesn't work. And that's basically what these these guys were saying. The Franciscans and the Dominicans and the Jesuits were all poor. So it's almost like the Apostle Paul. He kind of rubbed it in people's noses. He was like, I preach the gospel and fire me if you want. And he went, oh wait, you don't pay me. Isn't that great? I can just keep preaching. I can just keep saying things that are painful and annoying because I don't work for you guys. I work for Jesus. And so in one sense, that's, that's how Wycliffe, in, in one sense, could have great freedom. But although he was dependent for his daily bread, he wasn't dependent as some political favor for his daily bread. And so he could live kind of radically free in that way and just not peddle God's word for a profit, but just give it away and in that way be the most subversive at, at, of all. Because we say, I don't care what I lose. I have this gift and I have to give it away. I have to give away uh, the gospel. So he's basically saying, Pope, when you start living like Christ in poverty and humility, I'll listen to you. 
and he was getting to the heart of pastoral life and to Christian life, is this isn't just some message we spout. This is a message that is lived out, that is transformative, not only in what we're saying, but in the very manner in which we live it. We're almost out of time. I'll just end with this quote. It'll be online. Sorry we don't have page two. Ran out of ink at the last minute here. This is what was said after uh, Wycliffe's death. This pestilent and wretched John Wycliffe, that son of the old serpent, endeavoring by every means to attack the very faith and sacred doctrine of Holy Church, translated from Latin into English the gospel that Christ gave to the clergy and doctors of the church, so that by his means it has become vulgar and more open to laymen and women who can read than it usually is to quite learned clergy of good intelligence. And so the pearl of the gospel is scattered abroad and trotted underfoot by swine. What was Wycliffe's sin? He took the gospel from the authorities. Because remember asking that question, who is scripture for? The doctors and clergy of the church. And what Wycliffe did, he's like, I'm just giving it to God's people. That's who it's for. It isn't to be hoarded. And how did the church view it? You're casting God's pearls before swine. So wherever the Reformation has taken hold, and this isn't just a boast because we're Protestant Reformed people, it's historical fact. Wherever the gospel has taken hold, democracy has taken hold. Why? Power belongs to the people. And Lincoln, his famous quote, the government shall be of the people, by the people, for the people. You know where he got that from? John Wycliffe. He says the Bible is of the people, for the people, and by the people. That's how they are to be governed. And how did he? He's like, they can't be governed if they don't know it. And so he brought God's word down to God's people, and they lived it out. And so he's called, Wycliffe is called the morning star of the Reformation. Because he stuck his neck out, he brought the word down to the people. And with this whole cultural movement of asking hard questions to the people in charge, and he modeled that with his very life. And in fact, after his death, they dug up his bones and burned them to really put the message out. This guy's a heretic. Let's stomp on his grave. Let's burn him up. What he has done is dangerous to the church. And in one sense... We always want God's word to be dangerous to the church. That's why we're reformed and always reforming. We want the church, the word to always threaten our version of what we want church to be, or what we want our life to be, or what we want our family to be. We want, in a rock-scissors-paper game, we want scripture to win every time. And so our brother John Wycliffe modeled this devotion to Christ and this submission to Christ. He didn't care who he had to question because God himself has all authority and his word is that authority spoken into our lives and so as reformation people it's not just enough to say i hate the pope you know that's not what it's about it's i hate anything that would get in the way of god's people hearing god's word and being changed by god's grace so that means tradition is fair game cultural uh, conventions are fair game uh but what has to always be in play is the authority of christ's word because that's how he gets at us, and that's how his grace comes to us, is by his word. And so, uh, any questions or, or comments? About? That's a quick question. Is yeah. That, did the, um, the Roman Catholic Church, did they 
think they had all authority? Is it uh, from the passage where, where Jesus gives Peter the keys? Yeah. And so this unbroken succession from Peter is how the authority is traced. And there's some parts of that that were legit in the early church without a, a canon of scripture, which wasn't really set until 325 for the Council of Nicaea, basically approved the lists of scriptural books. The canon was recognized by the church in all that period, and it was very clear which ones were the heretical books and the non-biblical books. Very few of them were ever contested except with maybe uh, Song of Solomon and, uh, and James. And even Luther had a problem with James. He thought it was a little too works-oriented. So, uh, <clears throat> but for the early church, the way that we preserved the faith is, who was your pastor? Who did you intern under? Oh, he's legit. Yeah, and so that went for the first three years. That was the only way that you could really have this line of authority and in First John, it, it basically declares this. It says, they went from us because they were not of us. And they, didn't, they couldn't hang, not because we kicked them out, but because they were departing from the truth. And so there was this relational uh, kind of way that the gospel was kept and preserved in ways that kind of sound like apostolic succession. But that was just a really practical thing is, if somebody came to preach your church, he would have to have a letter uh, authorizing, saying, we vouch for this dude, he's legit. Um, and Paul says, we don't need a letter, you're our letter. So he was saying, our ministry among you and your changed life is my letter of recommendation when I go and preach somewhere. Because God's word has come to you, not only with, he says, with word, but also with power and, and a transformed life. And so for the first time, few hundred years, that was all it took. And then obviously you have to kind of get some administration going once the church grows and gets bigger. So that's kind of the shift is after that um, kind of four or five hundred mark. Yeah. Dave, yeah. Um, so like kind of going back to the structure yeah. of the, the Catholic Church, how does that play into like uh, current day like Catholic like, like, now of, like the, the Catholic Church? So like like tr- Priests still have like the power to like forgive sins, mm-hmm. and so was that kind of like, um, <clears throat> like nowadays that they kind of do that as like a preservation of what this is all kind of coming to in this day, like how people would contest the authority, the church, and then like what what is your kind of role? And right, right. Say, well, my role is to give forgiveness. You know, the yeah, literally, uh, the theologian that kind of was at the time of this unum sanctum was Thomas Aquinas, and he is kind of the theologian of the church in terms of how does grace work, and so it, grace became much more mechanical under Aquinas and then later theology is that grace is like a substance that flows down, then you have to basically say, is this a legit conduit of grace, literally like a pipe? And so we're basically talking about what are the legitimate delivery systems of pipe for grace to get to you. Um, so that's why it sounds very mechanical. And obviously, in that authority chain, you have to make sure, like good plumbing, all your pipes are connected. And so that's why that authority structure is so important, that it's flowing. Christ, Peter, Pope, Archbishop, Bishop, Priest, Dice, you know, you got to have the plumbing 
in place there. And, and then where, <coughs> did they, where did they base that? Just from, is it from scripture? Or cause it starts with scripture and then it gets a little more solidified and systematized. And uh, systematic theology is very important, but it has to always be run back through biblical theology. Otherwise, it gets kind of hardened in these categories in this almost mechanical way. So that's why coming back, kind of what Wycliffe was doing, coming back through biblical theology makes you say, sure, you can quote a verse for that, but that doesn't seem the way Scripture kind of flows out. Everybody can tag a verse on something, but is, is that the way Scripture flushes it out? And that's what the Reformers were asking. And then uh, next we're going to look at Calvin, basically looking at this very personal vision of union with Christ. Uh, Eric picked that up a few weeks ago. But I would say that's Calvin's genius, not just his beard, or uh, Geneva, but really union with Christ as really how we understand the gospel. And it's not, do you have your pipes lined up, but is, are you connected to Christ by faith? That faith actually, we're to smack up against Jesus. We're actually one with him. And in fact, the most often, well, publicity for next week. The most often quoted theologian in uh, and, and book of the Bible quoted in Calvin is Song of Solomon and Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, which is a, a medieval biblical theologian, basically saying Song of Solomon is about us and Jesus. It's about husband and wife, but it says we are meant to be one with him. We're never to be separated. Him sending us checks in the mail of worth and merit we're, we're, we're married to him we get all of his beauty all of his his life and uh, so that's kind of next week's uh, plug so it's gonna be good stuff so good good questions there'll be more I'll try to put some more links online there's some really good uh, resources that I couldn't put in here or boil down I'll give you my uh, chart too if you want uh, as a as a link so <laughs> So yeah, good, good stuff. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here this morning talking in English, um, reading our ESVs and our NIVs and our NASBs, all because of the work, uh, literally uh, with shed blood of translators and scholars who didn't just take this up as an idol uh, propped to their own pride, but they did it uh, for the sake of God's people having God's very words, uh, giving them life. We thank you. Pray that uh, many more would rise up all over the world bringing uh, the gospel in their own languages to their own people so that we can bow the knee to Jesus alone. We thank you for this day in Jesus' name. Amen.